Blog Talk Radio. some pretty tough topics, um, and we have been doing that lately. We've been handling some pretty tough topics. Today, we're kind of getting back to our domestic violence issues roots, and uh, we are talking about um, collusion. And if you're not sure what that means, that's what we're going to, uh, to talk to you about. I have a guest, Albert. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Albert, say your last name for me because I don't want to mispronounce it. And I'm afraid that I will. <laughs> yes, it's it's uh, it's Shagoya. Shagoya. See, I would have said it with a yes. hard C. So Albert <laughs> Shagoya uh, from Texas. Yes. You don't have a Texas accent, though. Oh, it may come out. It it depends on the the you know the terminology or the expressions. It it might it might reveal itself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was I was going to put on my cowboy boots just to you know get in the yeah. spirit of things. I I forgot. Well, Albert, um, you work with an interesting organization, uh, Batters mm-hmm. Intervention Program. And yes. tell us about your background, how you got into the field, and then, if you would, tell us just a little bit about your organization, and then we'll start Great. talking about collusion. For those of you out there, if you would like to call in and get in the queue, the number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And we also have the chat room open, so you can uh, click on the chat room if you'd like to type in a question and you're shy about being on the air. Albert, how did you? How, what's your journey been? How have you gotten to this point? Well, interesting enough, I, I, I didn't start out um, really doing any sort of domestic violence work. Uh, I, I've been with uh, Adicare, the agency I'm with. Uh, this will be my 21st year. So the first, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, the first four or five years, um, I I did anger management, and it wasn't until uh, there was a, an initiative on creating a curriculum for domestic violence and the batter's intervention prevention program uh, started to unfold through the Texas legislature here, and so uh, you know my my boss. Said, hey, you know, we thought about working with men who were who were violent towards their spouse, and I said, sure, you know, why not? Not knowing what I was getting into, and so from <laughs> that point on, it's been it's been quite a journey. And so when we talk about collusion, I look back real early in my counseling career, how it's being uninformed uh, lends itself to collusion and complicit with with men who batter. And and so that's why it's so important that we're having this conversation. Good, good. I think that one of the things that a lot of people who haven't been involved in domestic violence and sometimes even victims uh, are taken by surprise at how sneaky batterers can be, at how pervasive and invasive that whole phenomenon can be. And... Um, uh, you know, it, it, I, I really think that that's surprising to people. I, I used to uh, say that people seem to think that when you, first of all, when you say domestic violence, people think bruises and broken bones. But it's so sure. much more than that. And Absolutely. I, and I also, uh, you know, I think people sometimes until they're informed, they have this notion that, you know, somebody just flies off the handle, you know, loses it, mm-hmm. you know, has some sort of big violent fit, and then they're very sorry. And the woman sure. who stays in that environment is somebody who puts up with that, um, which completely, completely ignores the insidiousness of it. So, you know, absolutely. Did, you know, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You're the guest. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, one of the things that uh, you know, we 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 started a, a training initiative to really inform and empower other facilitators, other agencies who are doing this kind of work. Uh, you know, our mantra during all of our trainings is, you know, victim safety is paramount. And when you put that in the forefront in working with men who who batter or men who are violent or abusive, uh, it's going to put you in a better place to uh, really prevent collusion. 
one of the terms that I like to use in my training is remember who's telling you the story. It's the batterer who's telling you the story. So the story's always going to appear, his violence is always going to be justified. And that has really helped me uh, throughout my whole counseling career is remember who's telling you the story. Uh, He is going to justify, minimize, deny, and and at times even glorify his violence towards women. Well, and he's always the victim himself. Yes, absolutely. And so it's, it's, you know, once again, it's all about blaming, justifying, minimization, uh, and and glorification, which can be very dangerous. One of the things that, uh, you know, is one of my my pet areas of concern is how many of these guys, and of course, these these are the folks that end up in court and in custody battles and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And how many times do batterers seek counseling, seek psychologists, seek people to go to? They tell them their story, and the psychologist just buys it wholeheartedly and then says, well, of course he did such and such because he was under pressure and she did this. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, the psychologist really doesn't know. All the psychologist knows is what that person has said. And, of course, you can say the same thing for the one that she goes to. You know, all, you know. But sure. I, I've never understood why people who counsel don't kind of take things and look at it from the perspective of, but there are other circumstances or other things that went on in this environment besides just what this person is saying. And for Absolutely, some reason, yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, the, okay, the hard and fast rule is uh, if you do have a client who is coming uh, to see you uh, on a one-on-one basis and he does have some history of domestic violence, that should be the, the first red flag. Um, you should immediately refer him in a group setting because it's easier for the batterer to hide behind all these other, uh, what he might believe are reasons why he's abusive as opposed to in an actual batter's intervention prevention program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, and batters can be pretty persuasive as well. They can be very sympathetic, too. Um, Absolutely, very charismatic yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean, even there's, there's... just the the fear of addressing uh, his violence, and and you know we're all human, and I think facilitators and counselors, uh, you know, working with men who are violent, you have to really take a, a real strong, honest look at yourself, and uh, what is it that you're afraid of? Uh, you know, there's a lot of ethical things that you need to be having these discussions uh, during case staffing or refer out if you need to, if if you feel like, you know, you're just not, that you are colluding. You want to refer out to a group setting or maybe even refer out to someone who's who's well-versed in, in the theories of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Well, let's back up a little bit, Albert. And again, I want to throw out our phone number, 646-378-0430. What is collusion? We had a, a pretty good conversation about this off the air, um, which doesn't help our listeners at all. When we say collusion, <laughs> yes. what do we mean by collusion? Well, I can give you uh, just a couple of examples. Um, if if I and once again, we're talking about men who are violent and abusive. We're not talking about men who are not. So I want to make that clear. Um, sure. Whenever you become agreeable or you even approve of the reason why your client was violent when you when you collude in his justification his minimization of the violence that he's used and it doesn't always have to be violence it can be just the emotional abuse when you when you when that becomes agreeable to the counselor and to the facilitator you put the victim's life at such a great risk uh, what, uh, the best example I can give you is uh, most of my clients, when they come in, they say, you know, I, I hit my wife because I have an anger problem. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of relationships where there's animosity and there are resentments, but how do you explain those relationships that aren't violent? And so it, it really challenges 
the batterer to say, well, how does that happen? Well, because they don't believe in violence in the relationship. They don't believe in abuse in the relationship. And so really there's a lot of great references to lean on in terms of, you know, if you're going to work with men who batter, understand that there's a lot of great books to lean on. And I've, I've I sent over some citations in certain books that are very helpful, uh, whether it's Bancroft with, you know, why does he do that, or any sort of core curriculum, whether it's Emerge. Uh, these are great tools to really use. You have to have some type of framework with working with men who batter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can go over some of those resources later because I think one of the things that when when someone goes through the phenomenon of, of being in an abusive relationship, um, you know, part of it is kind of like a deer in the headlights thing, and and you try to understand what is happening here because it defies sure. logic, defies expectations. So it's always good, I think, to have those resources for people. And, of course, Bancroft is a good one. Um, so let's, you know, hit some of those topics later and some of those resources later. Great. Right now, when we say collusion, what I'm hearing you say is that there are organizations, whenever domestic violence occurs, whenever a divorce occurs, there's usually a community of resources that are drawn in. It can be the courts, it can be psychologists, it can be guardians ad litem, it can be police. There, There's, there's a, a, a whole um, uh, surround that goes on. And we can refer to those as systems or organizations or whatever word you want to sure. apply to those. What I have seen is that many times, because of a lack of understanding of what domestic violence is, there are assumptions made. And sometimes those assumptions are really, really off kilter, and they end up really re-hurting victims who, instead mm-hmm. of being re-victimized, should be actually getting some assistance from some of these systems. Sure, absolutely. Is that what you're calling collusion? Yes, yes. It's it's always, um, and I say this during our training, and at times it can be kind of abrupt, but it's always easier to blame the victim, isn't it? It, it yeah. requires very little effort on your part. Um, you know, There was a case here in Dallas several years ago of a young man murdering his his ex-girlfriend. And uh, I was watching uh, the news with my daughter. She was probably 10 at the time, and she said, you know, Dad, she said, why did she stay? And I said, well, mm-hmm. that is the problem. We we always want to say, why does she stay? Well, the real question should be, why, as a society, why did we allow him to do this? Because you know, it turns out a lot of people knew that there was violence and so once again, it's always easier to blame the victim. It requires much more of us to hold the batterer accountable and to get involved. And so that's well, plus part batterers, of the collusion process. Yeah. Batterers are are not nice people to go up against. Sure. <laughs> so why on earth would we want to go against them? Um, you know, I mean, I see this routinely. I you know, when you talk about uh workplace bullying, for example, the bully usually gets their way because nobody wants to challenge them and go up against them. They just want to give them what they want so they'll go away. Sure. Um, and I think it's the same thing with batterers. We want to just, yeah, you know, I mean, we don't really want to take on a batterer. It's easier for yeah. us to take on the victim. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's there's all sorts of reasons there. Some of it is self-protection. Some of it is just ignorance. Sure, um, just very ill-informed. Um, I yeah, was um, exactly. I was doing a uh, assessment, um, and and a few years ago we had a program here where the DA didn't have enough information to. They didn't know who to prosecute. They had a domestic violence case, and they didn't know who was the batterer, who was the victim. And so I was assigned a, a young woman who uh, her case was assigned from a small East Texas town. And this is about community collusion. So I come in, you know, we we sit down, and I start assessing. She's so she tells me this story that um, in her small town in East Texas, she said he hit me for the last time, uh, and she said I, I was afraid to call the police, 
and you know times were hard and they were living in a hotel and so when he hit her for the last time she fought back and someone there at the hotel called the police so the police show up and it turns out that her husband was uh was the mechanic for the police department there hey. and so you know they knew him and so they arrested her you know she had fought back and she said, you know, I'm I'm in the back of the police car, unhandcuffed, and the police officer inside the car is telling me, if you just would have kept your mouth shut, not any of this would have happened. And, you know, I didn't realize the magnitude of community collusion until that point. You know, it all seems sort of fictional, I'm sure, that it happens. But I'm sitting across the table from you know, a young woman has been victimized not just by the man she thinks who loves her, but by the community itself who was collusive with the spatterer. And that was real hard to to accept, you know, uh, and, and that her faith in the system failed her and, and law enforcement failed her. And so that's a that was a that was a big eye opener for me in terms of what is community collusion and and that to me is is the best example that I can give you. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I you know, we were talking uh, about this example in Michigan that I'm I'm looking at right now. Um woman married a man from um another country. They had three children. Um they divorced. And the man want, wanted to go back to uh, Israel, his his country of origin. And the mother, he wanted the children, so there's a custody battle. The children would not see their father. The judge ordered the children to see the father. The oldest child is 14. He refused. He told the judge that he had seen his father hit his mother and that his father was mean and none of the three children would see him. The judge, and and uh, this boggled my mind, um, proceeded to tell the child that he was a spoiled brat, that his father was a wonderful man, wonderful, mm. and that um, she was going to send these kids to a juvenile t- detention facility until they were ready to see their father. And so for the last couple months, these kids have been in a juvenile detention facility. Now, they've done nothing wrong. They have not broken a sure. law. They've not gotten in trouble with the law. Um, but the judge, nevertheless, sent sent them to a juvenile detention facility. I spoke with um, a, a friend of the woman, a supporter of the woman, last week, and the mother's visitation was prohibited. She was now pre- prohibited from visiting her children. The father had access to the children, and the children were sent this week, it ends maybe today or tomorrow, for a week-long um, reunification program, mm. which is one of those programs where they basically uh, harangue you into admitting that your father's a wonderful person, and of course you'll see him. And I think there's a lot of victim-blaming there as well. You know, uh, the courts uh, assume that when a child doesn't want to see their father, it's because the mother has poisoned their minds. That That's the only yeah. reason that it could possibly be. So therefore, punish mother and, um, you know, do whatever it takes to disabuse children of the notion that what they see and believe is, in fact, incorrect, that that's just something somebody yeah. was told, that they were told. Wow. Talk about collusion. So here's the yeah, protective I, I, mother without access to her children. Here are these children who've done nothing wrong except say they don't want to spend time with an abusive person who are being sent to juvenile detention facility with kids that have broken the law and have, you know, severe problems. Um, I mean, wow, does that kind of thing happen often? Yeah, I'm sure that it does. Uh, I'm sure that, um, and and really uh, the notion that... um, the very fact that you have, um, you know, you, if you have the victim, you have to remember that she's in a crisis mode. And, you know, we have this sort of misconception about uh, when we are in a position to help victims of domestic violence, um, you know, if, if that's not something you do every day, you're going to assume that she should be gracious and she should feel, 
you know, safe. And But, you know, most of the times, you know, she's in a crisis, uh, a crisis that she's lived in for a very long time. And so, you know, even the judge or the district attorney's office, they don't want to deal with someone who's in a crisis. They'd much rather deal with someone who's got it together and, and who can who can use that against his victim, and that would be, of course, the batterer. And so yeah. it's really about challenging our own views and our own misconception of how we now we're really defining how we want the victim to respond accordingly, much like the batterer. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So what organizations collude and why do they do it? Well, there unfortunately there are many. Uh you touched on uh you know judges in the judicial system, law enforcement as I mentioned before, and even, you know, maybe child protective services. Uh you know, if you have a a caseworker who you know, would much rather blame mom for staying uh, rather than referring the batterer to an actual intervention program. Or typically they would refer them to an anger management program. Subscribing to the belief that anger is the reason why he's abusive, uh, yeah. which is the furthest from the truth. Uh, or there's some type of uh, relationship dysfunction. It's another theory that unfortunately tends to side on the batterer's behalf because if the batterer says listen uh, I'm 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 abusive but so is she and so if you if you subscribe to that relationship dynamic then you are putting her at a greater risk because and if you're agreeable with that belief what's he going to say to her when he gets home that afternoon you see, the reason why I hit you is because you're just as aggressive and you are just as abusive, and all we need to do is learn how to communicate effectively. And so subscribing to that belief is also, you're colluding, because once again, who's telling you the story? And so it's yeah, one of the things that, that uh, as as facilitators, we talk about for five different theories of domestic violence, and that's one of them. It's called relationship dysfunction, where she becomes part of the cycle of violence. And once again, victim safety is paramount, so we don't subscribe to relationship dysfunction. Let's talk about why you're abusive and what is the belief that supports your abuse and your violence towards women. Uh, That's a harder question for the batterer to really look at and to much less answer. Yeah. Let's talk, you work with batterers. You work with batterers intervention. Mm-hmm. Does it work? I believe so. I believe it works for men who remain the entire, our, our program's 24 weeks, it's six months, it's an hour and a half, and I believe it works for the men who are committed to the process of change. And and I say that uh, because that's where they are. They're in the process of change. I don't know what they're like when they're outside of the program. We do offer ongoing support once they complete the program and they haven't committed another act of violence and they haven't been convicted of another crime. Uh, we encourage them to come back. And uh, you know we have men who do come back who feel like they're drifting or they're struggling and they don't want to be abusive anymore. So I find that the men that are able to hold themselves accountable begin to establish some compassion towards their victim and towards others. Uh, They subscribe to holding on to a new set of beliefs based on nonviolence. So, you know, those changes, you're talking about changing a whole lifetime of male privilege and recognizing that nonviolence is a way of life for them, and so it's it's a it's a process of change. And you can do that in what eleven weeks? It's twenty four weeks, six months. Oh, twenty four weeks. Yes, it's one time a week, twenty four weeks. That's the the, the standard here. Is, uh, you know, I mean, isn't doesn't there have to be? You know, it's like that old joke about how many you know psychiatrists does it or psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb sure. has to really want to change. You know, absolutely. Um, yes. How many of these guys really want to change? 
I mean, this has been a strategy that works for them. They get their mm-hmm. way. They get what they want. Sure. Why would I want to change? Well, obviously, so I don't go to jail. But what's the likelihood of my going to jail anyway? You know, I, I'm just throwing out scenarios here. So of people, one of the I things, mean, the court, in, sure, ahead. one of the things that we we talk about is uh, compliance. And so when um, usually, you know, a lot of the newer clients who come in in the first four weeks or six weeks. They use that same example. Well, I'm I'm only you know being nonviolent because you know I don't want to go back to jail or I don't want to go to prison or uh, you know I don't I don't want to go through a divorce. And you know we subscribe to a belief that compliance is not good enough. Compliance is just going to get you by until you're not on probation, until she comes back home, uh, until you know you're not on parole anymore. And so we 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 hold them accountable by saying your compliance is not enough. You have to change how you believe and how you view women. That's the only way. And so we we challenge them. Compliance is not enough. It's not it's not a good reason. Um, there are a lot of great programs that use compliance, but it's not effective. They have to change how they believe. It's from compliance to real change. Well, and isn't that? I mean, wow! How do you change someone's beliefs? That's 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 a, a big order, isn't it? Absolutely, it's the hardest thing to change in a human being. All human beings, by the way. One of the things uh, that we use in our core curriculum, and there are a variety of core curriculums. Uh, one of uh, uh, one of our models that we use, it's called the belief conflict. And so we want to be able to challenge their belief and create a conflict in their belief. And if I may, I'll give you just a, a small example. Sure. Uh, if if a man says, well, I got mad at my wife today and I told her to, you know, shut the hell up. Well, we talk about it. Well, what did you say to her? Well, I told her that, you know, if... If she continues to argue with me, then uh, then I don't want to hear about it. And so what we do is we use dialogue, and we write that on the board. If you continue to argue with me, I don't want to hear about it, then shut up. And so we write it on the board, and we say, what's the belief that supports this statement? Because they're not just mere statements. The dialogue helps you metabolize the batterer's thoughts and from his thoughts, you get to his core belief. And so we talk about what belief supports the statement that supports your choices to be abusive. And so typically the response might be, and this is where we get this information from the men in the room, it's not my responsibility to define what that underlining belief is. It's the group's responsibility to explore themselves, to talk about the statement, to define what is the belief that supports the abuse towards my spouse. So typically uh, what will unfold, once again, it's, it's a group process. It's a process that allows men to challenge, when I say this, what is the belief that supports my, or I think I have the right to tell my wife to shut up? Well, obviously we can talk about what those beliefs are, right? So the belief is, one of the core beliefs that comes from that statement is, I believe that my wife doesn't have the right to challenge me. I believe that if my wife argues with me, I believe I have the right to tell her to shut up. And what you're really saying is, I believe I have the right to be abusive. Mm -hmm. And so when we write these things on the board, you'll be surprised that the men of the room have never looked at where their abuse comes from. It, and if it does, it usually is caused by her. Being able to look at their belief, a lot of the men, are ch- they've never looked at their core beliefs as to be why they're abusive. Does that make any sense, what I'm saying? It does make sense. It does make sense. Uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, I'm always skeptical about batter intervention trainings because, um, sure. you know, in, in working with batterers, so many of them are entrenched in their behaviors and they don't see anything wrong with their behaviors. Um, 
so and I understand that you know if if they buy that approach how how it would help them, but I'm always skeptical because i I think, okay, so how many of them are going along with this just so that they can get through this program I don't well, know. when the room gets real when the room gets real quiet, and a lot of the men start to you they start to process what that is, and this is where I think some of the men will say. You know, Albert, this is really hard to look at. I've never really thought about thought about it that way. Because keep in mind, the men that I work with, very few of them have ever been held accountable for anything, for any of their behavior. Oh. And so to be in a room where they're being held accountable, and they, they'll have the option to hold each other accountable, this is a very different dynamic. And so part of that empowerment piece, because what we're talking about here is not just all accountability, accountability. Because our model is this. If it's just accountability, the only thing you're going to get is resistance. So the empowerment piece is you have the power to change. You have the power to, to acknowledge where your violence comes from and what belief that you subscribe to. You also have the power to change that belief. And in doing so, you're going to have to look at some things that are very difficult to look at. Do you talk in your groups about this idea of collusion? Whenever it comes up, I'll use it as an example. So whenever, um, like I'll have a young man, he'll come in and it's, we'll do what's called a check-in. So the check-in is your name, how many weeks you've been in the program, have you been abusive or violent in the following week, and who is the name of the victim? So typically when I get a new guy, he'll say, my name is Tony, today's my first day, um, my baby's mama is Tina, and we'll say, okay, let's have a conversation about what you just said. Me not saying anything about him calling Tina his baby's mama that would be colluding. Because if I don't challenge him on his demeaning term for his victim, then what I'm really saying is that that's okay, that that's mm. acceptable. And so what I do, and a lot of the men, they all kind of, some of them kind of go, no. <laughs> a lot of the men who have been there a while, they go, they get it. So I'll write it on the board, baby's mama. And I'll say, what message are you trying to send to me and to all the other men in this room about your victim when you call her baby's mama. What message are you trying to send? And, of course, no one's ever challenged him on the term his entire life. And, and so we say, when you think of the term baby's mama, let's write a description of what that looks like to you. And so it's usually... A woman who's using you for your money, a woman who has a bunch of children, a woman who's dependent on you, a woman you can't trust. And so we take this one term, because once again, groups based on dialogue, and we're able to recognize that when he says baby's mama, what he really wants the room to believe is that she is of less value. Oh. And so that's how we counteract lack of a better term, counteract or challenge um, why he uses that term. And so it, it's, a, it's once again, we could spend 20 minutes on the men saying, you know what, I used to call her that, but her name is Susan. And, and so I'll say, for the next week, I want you to say this. Whenever you mention Tina, why don't you say, my ex is Tina. She's the mother of my children. Just try it, and a lot of the men will, will laugh because it's uncomfortable, or they'll say, well, if I say that, then what will the other men think about me? Like, well, the other men will think that you're soft and you're weak because you're acknowledging some respect to your ex. But the good men in your life, they'll acknowledge that too. Mm -hmm. And so really we're talking about dialogue about, attached to What about the beliefs. women in your life who will acknowledge it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so even some of the men and, and the, the argument I get from the men who are in the process of changing, they'll say, well, she likes it. And I was like, 
No woman likes to be called that. And if they do, they're afraid to challenge you. What if yeah. she's afraid of you? What if she's afraid to say, "Don't please don't call me baby's mama? Or what if she said that before and you totally ignored her? And so it really helps the men identify with the terms that they're using, but even more so the belief that justifies their violence. It's it's a process. What you're saying then is that collusion doesn't have to be some big blatant will arrest her instead of him. Can Absolutely. collusion yeah. actually be a lack of challenging Not behaviors? saying anything. Yeah, yeah. That are, are, yeah. Hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting. Or, so or just being agreeable. The definition, when you broaden the definition in that way, I mean, wow, I mean, it makes it more of a personal level of collusion rather than just a systems level. Yeah, and and you know we can, uh, and this is where it's it's much harder for the counselor and the facilitator, obviously, because when we're doing when we're addressing collusion, uh, if you're a counselor who has a big ego, you're going to go, I've never colluded. I'm I'm well versed and trained, and I've taken. 12 hours of ethics this year. I, I don't. I, I would never do that, you know. Um, yeah. But if you're unaware of your own biases and your own prejudice, and if you're a counselor who's gone through two divorces and you're bitter at your ex and, and, and you happen to have a batterer as a client, you're more likely to collude and go, yeah, I can see what it's like to be with a woman who's crazy, and then you're colluding. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so what do, what do counselors do about that? If they have the awareness well, they're colluding, they do. Sure, absolutely. And sometimes it can be after the fact. It can be after the fact. Uh, the counselors that I supervise, uh, I had a young counselor a couple of years ago. He um, he had a problem with men wearing wife beaters. You know, they wear a tank top and they show up to group. And so there was a new guy who came in who was wearing the tank top, and and he's like, I'm not going to let him in group. And, uh, you know, he's been disrespectful towards women, and he's not willing to change. And and I was like, well, well, hold on a second. You know, um, all those things may be true, but he has to come to group, and we can address this with him afterwards. And so, so we come in with our own biases about men uh, who are abusive and who are violent. So that tells me that if there was a man who came in the group that wore the appropriate apparel, then that would make him less violent or less abusive. Yeah. Yeah. And so as counselors, yeah. we have to say, you know, my prejudice can really blind me from addressing what the core issue is. I mean, we can talk about what he's wearing, but most importantly, let's talk about where my prejudice is coming from as a counselor. And we all have these hooks that we get sure. sucked in with what uh, a, a client might say, uh, or we might believe that uh, one of the things that we don't do in group is that a client will say, well, don't you think we should get couples counseling? Absolutely not. Uh, because what does that look like in a counseling session? He's still battering. He's still abusive. Is she going to feel safe to really share about what's really going on with her in a couple's counseling session? No, of course not. Of course not. Let's get back a little bit to the whole notion of collusion, okay? You've enlightened sure. me. I mean, because when we started this conversation, I was thinking of collusion from, you know, organizations and, and systems, as I as I said. But I can also see that it's at a personal level. What do we do about collusion? What do we do about it? I mean, if we're if well, we're talking we about yeah. like the situation in Michigan, what can we do about sure. that? And then when we finish, when we solve that problem, let's talk about it on the personal level as well. Absolutely. So what do we do well, is, when we encounter systems? And and I'm talking not necessarily as professionals, but just as as citizens of the world here. What do we do about that? Is there anything that we can do about that? Most definitely. You know, we can get involved. We want to be mindful about our level of involvement. Uh, 
you know, we don't want one of the things that we talk about uh you know, we have a be active in a coalition, but really the the our main focus is one not to create a crisis in 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 your intervention. Uh you want to be well informed. Uh you want to be able to even have a community coordinated response whether it's through a coalition or even just uh surround yourself with victim advocates who can really, you know, empower you to to create an awareness. One of the things that we've done in the past year and a half is we've created a uh, a BIP training initiative. And it's really grown tremendously in terms of now we're doing trainings all over Texas. And really, we just want to create awareness of what is collusion. We want to make the training affordable and accessible. And so we really... We've really reached out to a lot of agencies who really want to know what causes collusion and how we can prevent it. And so that's really been, uh, uh, you know, a big step for us in just creating that awareness um, and that we're not going to collude. We're not going to look the other way. Mm-hmm. And so that would be one of the things that I would recommend. Uh, and also, if you're a batter's intervention prevention program you should have a working relationship with the shelter and with other victim advocates because I believe that the further you are away from a victim advocate, the closer you are to colluding with the batterer simply because you're no you're not talking about you're not having this discussion uh you know you you tend to lean towards colluding when you're not active with someone who's doing work with victims directly or or even indirectly. So those would be some of the suggestions that I would make. Okay. When we encounter the courts, for example, since that was our going back to our our, our scenario that we shared at the beginning of the show, what sure. can we do with the courts? I mean, it sounds to me like it comes back to education. People have to be educated. Well, that that you know that's a big chunk to say, and we've been saying that you know, in the domestic violence movement for, you know, 30 years. You know, we need to educate, we need to educate. Um, But, you know, there are certain areas where we seem to keep coming up short, and one of those areas seems to be in family court systems. So what can we do when we encounter this kind of collusion? I mean, obviously we could try to educate, but what can we do if we can't educate? I mean, we can't educate all the courts tomorrow. So what do we do? Well, I think uh, one of the things that we've been doing is uh, really establishing a training curriculum for free and allowing the courts, inviting the courts to be a part of that, along with the district attorney's office, CPS. And if if we are tenacious about it, uh, we make our services available, then, you know, we're moving in the right direction. And that's a, that's a strong commitment. Uh, and that's one of the things that we've done, as I mentioned, in the past year and a half, is that we'll continue to invite the courts, invite the district attorney's office, CPS, that you know we let us train you. Um, and to me, that's the step in the right direction. And it, once again, it requires a, a great deal of commitment, um, but it seems to be working. We, we have two great judges here who are very well-versed in uh, collusion, they're very well versed in the guidelines of uh, you know working with a batter's intervention prevention program. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're aware of this, but here in Texas, if you are accredited by the state to do this kind of work, you're required to have a victim advocate on site, and her or his responsibility is our clients have to give us the name and contact information of their victim. Our victim advocate, in turn, contacts the victim either by phone or will they'll mail her a letter referring her to counseling services, local shelters, legal information on how to file a protective order. Um, really want to empower the victim. And if our client gets dismissed from the program, our victim advocate will notify the victim he's been dismissed for failure to attend, uh, really forewarning 
the victim in the event that he tries to contact her again. So you're saying that not all of your clients come from court order are, are, are court ordered. Is that what you're saying? Most of our clients are court order. Probably ninety percent, five percent parole. We have a, a small percentage of CPS clients, probably two or three percent, and then we have a very small percentage of self-referrals, um, maybe one percent of the men who they'll show up in group and they'll say, I got mad at my wife, I pushed her, and she said, I'm getting a divorce unless you get some help, I'm trying to save my family. Uh, there are men who are self-referred, um, yeah, but a majority of our men are all court-appointed, whether, you know, through the district attorney's office, conditional dismissal, probation, parole, CPS. Yeah. Um, how? And you said you've been doing this for over 20 years? Yeah, it's actually eight, coming up on 18 years. Wow. Wow. Kudos And I to can you. tell you that early on, yeah, early on, um, there was no training available. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm really enjoying the initiative that we've done in the past year and a half is that, you know, think about it. If if you are a new counselor, even if you're a seasoned counselor and, and you don't have access to any effective training that works from some type of framework, then how are you going to get better? How are you going to improve? How are you going to sharpen your skills about collusion? Um you know, so that's one of the reasons why you know we feel like we're doing some really good work. Sure. Um when you you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you have some resources, one of the things that I would really like uh for us to be able to bring out is not all um of the listeners are um in the field, so to speak. Some of them are just, you know, like family members or you know, people sure. who are trying to understand this phenomenon. Do you have some resources for people who may have a, a sister going through this or, um, you know, who, who may have a family member and they're trying to understand this phenomenon, trying to understand so that they don't end up colluding to re-victimize? To me, the, the probably the best book that has really, I think it's a bestseller, it's, it's of course by Lundy Bancroft on Why Does He Do That?, uh, that to me would be the first recommendation on the list uh, because it it really challenges uh, the the abuser, uh, the batterer. Uh, it really challenges the mythology that he uses to justify his violence towards women and towards children. Uh, that would be number one on the list uh, in terms of uh, understanding, you know, why does he do that? And I believe you um, can the, get that off of a download or uh, Amazon.com. They're, they're very reasonably priced also. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's been out for a long time. Yes, um, it has. There's also a book that I really enjoy. As a matter of fact, I'm going back and rereading it right now, and it's Evan, Stark, Evan Stark's um, Coercive Control. Because oh, yes. I think okay, very good. It's so, it's so easy for us to get... Um, to to think that domestic violence only involves broken bones, uh, when in yeah. fact that uh, you know it is so much more than that. It's so much more comprehensive than that, and um, it explains you know when you understand coercive control, you you begin to understand why women get trapped in it, um, and and it's yeah, easier absolutely. to stop blaming the victim for just staying. You know, um, I remember one time being in a grocery store and and a woman came up to me and was talking about her neighbor who um, is in a, an abusive relationship, and she just won't leave. And I said, does she say why she won't leave? And this woman yeah. literally rolled her eyes and said, oh, she says she thinks he's going to kill her if she leaves. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, my gosh. Very, you know, she's that's a really legitimate reason for not leaving, I would think. You know, um, yeah. maybe you shouldn't roll your eyes. Maybe you should stop and think that maybe she knows what she's talking about, you know. Um, and so I think Coercive Control by Evan Stark is a really good uh, book. And um, I think that that might also uh, address some of the, this whole idea of collusion at the personal level. Because if we don't understand sure. what's going on there, 
um, you know, it, it's it's easy for us to roll our eyes like the woman in the grocery store did. Um, so, yeah, that's one that I believe is good. What about people who work in the field? Do we have some resources for, for those folks? Oh, absolutely. I think that if... Um if you're in the field, you definitely want to subscribe to a particular framework. There's uh, Emerge, which is a program uh, developed in Boston, and they offer trainings uh, throughout the year. There's uh, the Duluth model, of course, which is the oldest, and they offer trainings throughout the year as well. I would recommend the first edition, which is um, Working with Men Who Batter, and it's called the Duluth Model. Uh, that one is uh, probably one of my favorite books. It's the first edition um, by Ellen Pence and Pamer. And you can get that at a reasonable price um, on Amazon as well. That's a great book because it's it's curriculum-based. It addresses uh, many forms of collusion. It's a, a great handbook for a facilitator and, and really challenging yourself. And it really breaks down... Um, you know the whole process of creating a belief conflict and and how that how that dynamic works in group and so that would be yeah. a, another yeah. uh, great curriculum or a reference book to use yeah yeah i think uh, uh, authors that are good for people who are not necessarily in the field and and uh would like more information Ginny McCarthy and i c a r THY has a series of books that are, are very good in helping people understand. And again, coming back to this idea that if we understand, there's less risk of us colluding with uh, sure. an abuser to re-victimize. What about psychologists who are in the field who um, think that they, they ha- are well-read in this topic? Are there any resources that you can think of that might enlighten them uh, or, or refresh them uh, for dealing with yeah. clients? Try to avoid sure. collusion. I would think that uh, they would definitely be open to attending some domestic violence training or family violence trainings. Uh, also, I would hope that they would need to align themselves with some type of victim advocacy group or coalition. Um, typically, in, in in most counties, you, you hope that our, our domestic violence coalition meets once a month just to attend those and be a part of it, surround yourself with uh, people who are doing this kind of work. I think that's, to me, it's very empowering if I'm around people who are doing the same kind of work and, or even if, you know, we not always be on the, uh, you know, in terms of understanding domestic violence, but just be connected is what I would definitely recommend. Uh, be connected to someone who's doing this work and that will definitely really help you in, prevention from any type of collusion with uh, a person who is abusive or violent. I think that, like uh, like most things, if we're aware, if we're aware that there's the potential for collusion, if we have a name for it, then we're more likely to pay attention to it and try and guard against doing that. Um, uh, again, you know, that's for people in the field and that, as well as, you know, individuals who are encountering um, situations in their personal lives. If um, if I feel strongly about systems and collusion, you're suggesting that maybe our coalitions, our, our county coalitions or our state coalitions would be a good place to go to. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with you. We have and I know at times left. it... Sure. I know at times it seems insurmountable, but, you know, I believe that it only takes a tenacious few to really make uh, some significant changes. I'm, I'm a big advocate of, um, you know, like I said, it only takes a tenacious few to really make some changes. And I think too many times we think, oh, there has to be hundreds of people involved to really make some policy changes here locally. or, or And that's not true. Um, you just have to be tenacious and assertive and, and you're not creating a crisis within an agency. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't hurt to be well-organized. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah. Albert, we have a couple minutes left. Tell me your favorite success story from your organization. I had a I had a young man who he um he was able to really come to terms with his use of violence towards women. And he um 
the last day, this is the last group, you know, we of course we encourage him to come back. And I wasn't too sure. I, I would hope that I would see him again because he had made some significant changes in group. Um, you know, he was remorseful. Uh, and a lot of the other older men really felt good uh, about you know the progress he was making. And so he completes the program, and he shows up the following week, and he brings his cousin with him. And so his cousin is probably 17 years old, and he said, you know, I needed to tell my cousin that he needs to come here with me. And so it it meant that much to him. And a lot of the other men uh, really, I'll pose a question in group. Uh, is there any, any other men in your life that you would want to be here with you today? And so many of them raise their hand. They think, man, I wish my dad was here. I wish my brother was here. Uh, they could really, you know, I really would want them to be a part of this with me. And so a lot of the other men who make these changes go on to continue to try to pass that along, what they've learned. And so, you know, I, I think about uh, a lot of men who, when they make these changes, just how important it is. Their whole view, their, their whole worldview has changed because their beliefs have changed. And so that's that would be, you know, one of the stories that I think that that keeps me doing this work. It, it sounds like it sounds very challenging. Uh, from what I know about batter treatment, it's very challenging, um, and I, I commend you. I also uh, do. You have a website for people who would like to know more about your trainings that you offer. Sure, sure. It's called uh, BIP Consulting, and I'm not too sure if you'll post this. Uh, and it's on Squarespace. And so any information about an upcoming training and also for resources, uh, we do a lot of um, in-house counseling and in-house training for agencies who just want to train their staff. Um, we have some information on coalition building. That's a big initiative of ours is uh, smaller counties to um, you know develop a coalition and create more of an awareness. So, yeah, definitely that would be a good website to get in touch with me or you know, if you're interested in other resources that might be available to you. Great. And the website again is? BIP Consulting at okay. Squarespace, I believe, dot com. Yes. Okay. If you want to, I don't know if you want to post the link on your on your blog or your website. Um, you're more than welcome to do that as well. All right. Terrific. Um, I've learned a lot about collusion, and I have to tell you, I, I was fascinated when I ran across your training. I, I, I think I mentioned that I, I, through uh, another organization that uh, I'm on their listserv, I saw the notice sure. about your training, and I saw that this whole afternoon's training was on collusion, and I'd never really thought about it before. So the whole concept fascinated me because, of course, that's exactly what we're doing. And sometimes until somebody names it, we really don't know what's going on. You know, I mean, we really absolutely our our our, our thinking isn't clarified until we hear, uh, you know, a name for it. And so this whole notion of collusion, of, of systems colluding, of, of individual colluding, even though it's not necessarily intentional, it's not necessarily with nefarious reasons, we nevertheless mm -hmm. end up re-victimizing and re-hurting someone that we should, in fact, be trying to help. So uh, I thank you. I thank you for the trainings. I wish I could attend one. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sure. You know, <laughs> and and as as I said, I you know on uh, our initial contact, I hope that you have some sort of recordings or something that's available afterwards for those who can't sure. fly to Texas. Um, but thank you for being with us. I appreciate it. I always try to end our show with a quote. A uh, little hard to find quotes about collusion, I have to tell you. But you know the <laughs> uh, the so. actor William H Macy. Um, he's been yes. in a number of, of different things. Well, he has a, um, a quote that's about that includes the word collusion, but I think it, it applies because we're talking about collusion being a, a, a result of a certain ignorance about the dynamics and the character, if you will, of domestic sure. violence. So William H. Macy's quote is, character is a trick 
that we do with the audience's uh, collusion. So if we think about some of these public faces that abusers put on, and those of us who buy into that um, because it's easy to do or because we just aren't aware uh, can actually um, uh, participate in that collusion. Thank you for joining us. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Heather. Next week. Thank you very much. All right. See you women. Bye bye.